welcome adventurer to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Welcome, adventurers, to episode 28 of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. This is Patrick. And I'm Andrew. That's different. Hey, Andrew, how you doing today? It's good to be here. I'm here to crash the party. I yeah, actually, no kidding. I actually bribed the security guard with a copy of Ankh, so he let me in. His name's Bradley. He's a, he's a nice guy. You guys have some good help around here. Well, Scott has officially been fired. No, Scott's busy this morning. He had a few things going on. He's been uh, quite busy What with the end of the Harvey show that he just performed, and he's got the Renaissance Festival going on. So he said, hey, I'm not going to be of much use to you. I'm not going to be able to get in some place. He's going to join us in the latter half of the episode. But for now, I thought listeners would be great to get Andrew Davidson of AsPermiAbility.com on this show. He does our Academy segment introduced just a couple of episodes ago and forthcoming in this episode all right, Andrew, you're gonna you're gonna have to hold down the fort for the the first half of this with me. You ready? Like was Scott like served a pink slip? I just Did didn't tell him we were slip? recording today. I didn't give him his paycheck. Just, oh, like, okay. No. So it's like the it's like a, what is that um, office space where you yes, know, just he, exactly. he'll stop being he'll stop being paid. Yeah. 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 Oh, so you uh, you you told him about no, we fixed the error. Yes. So it'll <laughs> just work itself out. So, Andrew, you're doing the Academy segment. Uh, listeners, the way that this worked was Andrew said, hey, I've got a great idea for a recurring segment. I really like history and games and how they incorporate themes in the game. So he submitted some audio and I said, yeah, let's let's make this a regular thing. So let's get to learn a little bit about Andrew, the, the voice behind the Academy. Andrew, what's your favorite game? Yeah, I get this question a lot, actually, um, and it's always from non-gamers, so it's really tough to talk about. But considering you're a gamer, I'm a gamer, and this is a gaming podcast, this is actually a welcome for the first time in forever. This is like a welcomed <laughs> question because I can actually say games and, and you're probably able to know. So I kind of have a about. stock. I kind of I'm like Stephen King. I kind of like have stock answers to everything that you can ask me. So I say in no particular order, my top three favorite games are Viticulture, Great Western Trail, and Terraforming Mars. Those are my kind of top three kind of heavy, crunchy strategy, I guess, Euro games, you would call them. Mm -hmm. And so that's my stock answer. And of course, you know, you can never give that answer to someone just walking out on the street that's like, oh, you're into games? What's your favorite game? And it's like I've never heard of they're any expecting of those. Scrabble or something. Like, something like, yeah, like you're like you must be really good at Clue. Well, you could it's say like, Catan actually, or Ticket to Ride, and they they probably have an idea. You know, you see those yeah, at but, Target now. But I don't play those. Fair enough. You don't play. Have don't you play ever? Catan. You've played Catan before. I played Settlers of Catan once a long, long time ago. I don't really remember much about it. Ticket to Ride, I do support and I do endorse. I think it's a great family game. You know, mm -hmm. it's easy to learn, easy to teach. There's just a smidge of strategy to it so that people feel like they have meaningful choices. But it's also like super light. You know, it's something that families can play in about an hour or under an hour, somewhere around there, depending on the maps that you play. And I've not played all the maps, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say because I'm kind of a really big thematic gamer. I wouldn't say that Ticket to Ride would be on my top list of of games. There's kind of a big dichotomy, as you know, of like Euro game or they call it what a Marathrash or Maratrash. I like and the I'm trash. 
I, I like the trash. I'm 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 heavy into theme. I don't mind a little bit of randomness. Um, I, I'm really into narrative and like kind of story and really thematic games. And yet, your so, top three games that were in no particular order are not Ameritrash games. Yeah, so, I, those, an Omni gamer willing to give it all a try. Well, games these days are really doing a big amalgamation of the two. Where you have, like, for example. There's Dune Imperium. If you ever played Dune Imperium, it's a really great game. It's a deck builder, but it's like a worker placement. It's from the guy that's, that made Clank. Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, it's got the deck building aspect, which is kind of an RNG factor because it's all about how you cycle your deck and how how your shuffle turns out. But it's also a worker placement, which is categorically a Euro mechanism. So mm-hmm. a lot of games are becoming, I think they call them hybrids. Yes. I think. There are like a lot of hybrid games out there. And I do, I do enjoy those. I originally got into board games through Arkham Horror, which is the most thematic game you could probably think of. Well, now theme is something that you focus on in the Academy segment. The last one that you did was Tammany Hall, and you incorporate a whole lot of the thematics of the game and a bit of the history. That's sort of something that you look for in games is how historically accurate are they? I gather that you're really fascinated by that. Yeah. So the whole Academy segment is actually a spinoff or adjacent to something that I'm currently at the time of recording this. I'm working on writing a book where the Academy segment is pretty much kind of a sampling of what I'm doing in the, the written form mm-hmm. of the book. So I'm writing a book titled Narrative and Game, Discovering America's History Through Board Games or Through Tabletop Gaming. And I do exactly what I do in, in the Academy section. I do it a little bit more on a grandiose scale because it's a book, so I can kind of ramble yes. a, a bit more for, for lack of a better term. That's how I first got started. I started thinking of some very interesting facts about history and about all the historical games. I do have some historical like education, like from college under my belt. And mm-hmm. so that's especially on the American side. I studied a lot of American history, which is why most of them in the book that I'm writing focus for the most part on like American history. And so that was kind of the inception, if you will, of the Academy section was kind of just an offshoot of like, hey, I kind of want to try out some of my material, like, like a stand-up comedian, right? Like I want to try some of my material and kind of see just how it goes over, how it sounds. And I'm looking forward to doing some more of it and incorporating some stuff that I won't even touch on the book. You know, some things that uh, games like, um, for example, Western Legends, something that's like American West, you know, like an American West thing, you know, maybe that's something that I would love to touch on, but I'm not necessarily writing about it in the book, but it'll be something for the Academy. You know, so far you've received more positive feedback than Scott and I combined, just uh, so you're aware. <laughs> and that is reflected in my check. Is it yes. <laughs> I do have my own YouTube channel as per my ability on YouTube. And I did give a shout out to this podcast on there oh, and did a video. You. So I'm assuming it's some, some of that is from bleeding over from the YouTube. Uh, I see. I so see. That's my, that's my assumption. Yeah. Well, you mentioned as per my ability at the beginning of the Academy segment. Tell us a little bit about what as per my ability is. So as per my ability started Christmas a couple of years ago. So we'll say um, almost two years ago. I always wanted to do something board game related. I didn't know really what to do because there's a lot of board game content out there mm-hmm. on social media platforms from even TikTok, you know, YouTube and TikTok and, and things like that. Also, I wasn't really comfortable 
I was kind of camera shy, for lack of a better term. I didn't really want to be on camera. I didn't want to record myself. I didn't know whether if I wanted to do reviews or interviews. And so something that I am really, as we already just talked about, I'm really, really entrenched in narrative. So as for my ability, initially, I guess initially started as talking about games and story and narrative. Sure. So thinking about, so examples that I originally started off with were like legacy games. I did time stories. So I'm actually a huge time story fan. I think I'm the only one left on the face of the earth. <laughs> that game still, did fall off a cliff. Yeah, no one plays it. I think I'm the only one that actually would give a nod and say, you got to play time stories. And so it started with focusing on games like that and then just branched out into talking about different mechanisms such as what's variable player count what's action selection what's drafting you know and then starting to kind of review games or talk about games that are good or games that are bad hopefully listeners this gives you an idea of the guy behind the academy segment you you learned a good bit about archmage Andrew today. And Andrew, I'm glad to have you. If you want to stick around, I'm not going to have Scott until the review. Why don't we talk about some of the games we've been playing recently? You got some? I do. Okay. What do you want to lead us off? Or do you want me to take the floor? Take, take the reins? I will let you, uh, <laughs> I will defer to your acumen. Oh, right, right. Well, Andrew, I had a chance to play Cloud Spire. This is a 2019 release. Cloudspire was designed by Josh Carlson, Adam Carlson, Josh Wilgus, and published by Chip Theory Games. Now, this is inspired is by like a MOBA tower defense style games. The only thing that I could relate that to, because, you know, I, I play a bunch of old school video games. I don't play the new stuff. And to my understanding, MOBAs are, are a new thing. League of Legends. And I, I don't I couldn't even do you know what MOBA means? Massive online battle arena. So, Patrick, what does MOBA mean? Don't do that to me. Don't put me on the spot. Editors note MOBA means multiplayer online battle arena. You know what? I'll look it up and I'll put in an editor's note. But anyway, that's what it's about. And to my understanding, you know, tower defense is quite simple. I'll give you a, a little story. I used to be a substitute teacher. And oh, me too. Is that right? And yeah. well, are, are you certified? I, I am. In history? Uh, history, uh, literature and history. American history, yeah. Secondary? Mm-hmm. I'm uh, secondary history certified. Of course, are you? I'm certified in the great state of Pennsylvania, so you know that's the better. greatest of states. <laughs> um, so, so what did you focus on with with a world history, a specific like reconstruction so, um, period? Civil War. It's probably yeah, world history, yes, but but American specifically in Civil War, most oh. specifically. Dude, we're like three hours from Gettysburg here. That's my doppelganger right there. I did my I did my seminar thesis on. Uh, one of the battles of the Civil War, Chattanooga, like outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. It was one of the later battles. It's actually a Union loss, a uh, Northern loss, headed up by um, General Ulysses Grant and William S. Rosecrans. They ended up losing that battle. You're making the show way too smart right now, Andrew. I can tell you the four <laughs> Ninja Turtles. Uh, there's four of them? exactly are oh. they still turtles or are they robots or are they aliens can somebody please just make their mind up can we just go pick one thing and go with it 
Well, I bring up substitute teaching because uh, the kids at this point, they all had more money than I did. Actually, they had smartphones. This is probably 10 years ago. Just to give you an idea. Smartphones were becoming a thing. And some of the kids would like, if it was study hall, you learn quickly as a substitute, like you ain't winning that battle of, of the phone thing. You know, the kids are sitting there like leaning back in their desk, kind of looking down and you see the shoulder. It's like, okay, I know you're on your phone. So it's like, whatever. But some of the kids showed me how to play a game called balloons. And all it was, was a pathway. And these little balloons would come along the pathway. And your goal was to put things in the way that would pop said balloons. And progressively with each level, you could upgrade your stuff. Like you could have road spikes and machine gunners and needles and all kinds of things that would pop the balloons, but more and more and more balloons, like the first level, there might be seven, but by level 23, there's 7,000 balloons that you need to have popped before they reach your, you know, the, the end of this path. So I guess uh, that's sort of your tower defense concept. And that's in a way what they're trying to capture with cloud spire. And that, and the name, and it's called balloons. Right. But without the a, so it's just B L O O N S I've looked for it since I don't think it's, on I would there love to be in that pitch meeting. I would love to sit in that and be like, all right, what designer, what do you got for the name? Uh, balloons. Oh, that sounds good. Let's go with that. Sounds good. Just <laughs> drop the a. Blooms. But yeah, there's, there's no way that, that that's just going to get lost in a sea of dross on the Apple store or whatever. Let's get into Cloud Spire a bit. Whenever you set up the game, each player is going to get their own faction. Now, this includes your home base and an allotment of units that you can construct. Now, these factions have minions, they have heroes, but they all feel very very different kind of like if you're playing magic the gathering red cards versus blue versus green they're, they're all similar in some way they all have creatures and spells and whatnot but the way that they function what their goals are and the way that they approach victory are in fact remarkably different very asymmetrical the goal in cloud spires to deploy your units to the board and march them towards your opponent's fortress gate and whittle down its health and after four rounds Whoever has the most intact, powerful fortress will win the game. Just four rounds of play, but there's a lot going on. So let's start breaking it down. During each round, you're going to allocate resources to upgrade your defenses, as well as purchase unique units and structures from a market. Then once you deploy your units, you begin marching, going around the table one turn at a time. You have your heroes who can move however they want. But the minions, they have to follow along the quickest possible path to the opponent in a, we'll call it a semi-programmed way. So kind of like balloons, where the balloons have to go along the path at a certain rate. You might have a minion that says every turn he gets to move twice, but your movement has to be towards your opponent's tower. Now, what if it's a three-player game? What if it's a four-player game? Well, then you designate at the start of the round, who am I going to be marching my minions to? What's the shortest path? Just count. Pretty simple. Chip theory games, if you know anything about chip theory games, their components are off the charts. I think their games are all waterproof. I think there's really? two videos where people will just toss the game into the bathtub filled with, yeah, all the cards are like a plastic. Instead of boards, you have neoprene and the, you use poker chips, like those clay poker chips. You can spill a drink on this game and it's, it's going to be all right. Point is the components are off cool. the chart. Artwork's kind of minimal in that the actual gameplay, I, I think it actually suffers from teeny tiny chips, the artwork that is, because you get these great renderings of these images of these characters, but they're on they're on a small poker chip. So you, know, you just kind of got to peer in on it. Plus, furthermore, the poker chips have all the stats of the guys on it. So they got to make it really little in the middle. And eventually, you know what you do? You don't even focus on what the picture is. You look at the name so that you can reference what it does. And you look at the symbols so, so you know how that chip functions rather than admiring the art. So they kind of lose a little bit of the artistic tie. And plus, 
printing on neoprene in a way I, I feel blurifies the art. Blurifies is a good good word. Pixelates. Pixelates. It's not as sharp. Mm-hmm. So the theme is basically you're all fighting for control of source, which I guess is like mana that comes from these cracks in the land. It's like a light blue spot on your neoprene put together board. I thought they did a fantastic job of making each of these factions feel unique, though, in the game. So thematically, you get a lot of theme in that the tree people feel very different from the humans. But no, the game really does have a, a really nice, unique feel for each faction, kind of like in a game of StarCraft with the Protoss, the Zerg, and the Terran. Each faction plays in its own way. I'm you know, with- you're actually lucky enough that I'm old enough to know that reference. Good. You As well, you should. So Cloudspire offers some amazing variables, like what becomes available in the market, what units you're going to opt to build, but there's so much more. So let's start here. The game starts with face-down white chips that are going to represent portals or toxic enemies, mercenaries, all seated on the board waiting to be discovered. You might earn yourself relics from defeating heroes and discovering ancient ruins. There's an event deck to spice up play by introducing a variable to every round. Now the game's only four rounds and this deck is like 20 cards. So you don't know what you're going to see. It does introduce a bit of luck or randomness that might, might've been a little bit too swingy for me, but Hey, I like events in games, things like, um, you know what? I've referenced Yido with Scott a lot. Yido has events and some of them are brutal. You know what? That makes the game different from one play to the next. So I've never played this game. It sounds like it's quite complex. Like, is it an easy game to learn? No, it's definitely not. Complexity is where I think Cloudspire loses me a little bit. I didn't find it difficult to learn, to answer your question. It's not easy, Andrew, but it's not hard. The issue is that just about each and every single one of your dozen different units has a keyword, sometimes several. Now, you have a two-sided... You ready for this? You have a two-sided alphabetical keyword reference that you're going to become quite intimate with as you play. Your own faction reference has each of your chips on the back of it. So like your faction (laughs) reference card, it tells you like, here's what your buildings are. Here are your upgrade for your buildings. You turn it over and it gives you a breakdown of each of your chips with their keywords on it. And that does help a little bit. I can handle that. I can figure out what my faction does. And maybe it takes me a game or two to figure out how to play them well. The problem is... While I'm struggling to remember what all of my stuff does, I don't know what your stuff does. So if I'm going to play optimally, not only do I have to memorize all of the keywords on all my stuff, I got to know what all of your, okay, that chip over there, what's it, what's his strength? What's how much health does he have? What's his ability? Okay. And what does that keyword mean? Hi, if your gameplay is just two people, if you're just gaming with your spouse or something, this could be an excellent game to dive into for a few weeks or a few months. But the way that I tend to play with my groups, we typically play a game once or twice. And then we're going to shelf it for a couple months, then come back and revisit it and then shelf it again. Eventually we have games that are like a shelf evergreen or we're going to tire of it and it goes on the cell pile. So from what you've been talking about, it sounds like a game called Heroes of Air, Land, and Sea by Scott Alms. Heroes of Land, Air, and Sea is very much like a StarCraft type game. It's very much like an RTS. This building allows you to build these these kinds of troops. And then once you have those kinds of troops, you can build another building, which allows you to upgrade those kinds of troops. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, it just kind of stacks like a tree on top of that. So what you're explaining sounds a lot like those rts style like red alert and starcraft you mentioned yeah it's basically trying to emulate those those video games yes okay yeah okay so so where do we land on cloud spire you know was was the game good 
I think the game's phenomenal. I think the variables are phenomenal. The problem is that, you know, if I'm going to play this, I think I'm going to play it solo. Uh, when I have three hours in the evening and my wife's on the road, sure, I'll, I'll play the next scenario. I'm, I'm good for that. The problem is I can't bring this to the hobby shop and expect to have anyone to play games, you know, to, to be playing the game within an hour, let alone having a grasp on the abilities of their fortresses and their units, let alone mine. I mean, I've been playing Magic since 96, and it got to the point where you could name about any card, Andrew, even an obscure common from like Kamigawa. I could tell you what it does. Magic's fun when you're playing with someone who's on a similar skill level. It's no fun for a new player when they get stomped, but the dirty secret is it's no fun for the experienced player to stomp on the new guy either. They want someone of a, you know on an equal playing field. Is it? Is it really? No, is it really, honestly, is it like... Really? Okay, if you're in a tournament and your goal is to just win, yeah, you don't mind getting the the pair da- the pair down with somebody who's not as as good or not as competitive because like, okay, I'm gonna get a win and that's that's fun. That's what I'm here for. I only <laughs> dominate when I'm on the mound. Right now, nah, the point is, I think Cloudspire could for me fall into that trap. It's it's the type of game that you learn and you understand, and therefore you either play it easy when you're teaching someone or you stomp them, which probably doesn't satiate your competitive gaming spirit. And it certainly isn't going to have them wanting to come back to the table. So am I going to play this again? Yes. Solo. Do I ever see a situation where I'm breaking this out with two or three other gamers who know how to play and they're ready for that robust tactical game with thousands of variables and meaty decisions? I wish, but it's probably not going to happen. I mean, if I had that group, this would compete for my favorite game ever. I think it could. Honestly, it's very, very good. Really? Oh, very solid gameplay, and I thoroughly enjoy it. Andrew, if there was a Cloud Spire Club somewhere around here, I would sign up today. I like it that much. But I'm sure there is. (laughs) Probably not. I guess the the long and short of it, I think Cloud Spire is a game that requires a commitment that not only, you know, I don't have that, you know, the, the time to commit to it, but I don't have the gamer friends that do so either. So this is a game that I'm either going to have to continue to play and continue to love solo, or I'm not going to get to play it at all. A couple of comments on what you've been saying just about Cloudspire. Yeah. It's kind of an interesting like juxtaposition because you're talking about how it's like your favorite game and yet you only play it solo. So that's kind of a weird thing because board gaming is such a social thing. It could be my favorite game. Uh, as far as solo games go, yeah, well, maybe it's my favorite solo. I'm not sure. And I haven't played it enough to make that determination, but I can tell from the fact that like there are so many variables. There are so many things to consider. Every game is going to play out similarly, but remarkably different. I can set it up, play a game, and then when we're done, set it up and play again. And we're playing with the same pieces, the same factions, and yet the game just has a total different feel to it because you put down a different hero. The first event did something crazy to the, you know, oh, wow, that's so different from last time. It has that going for it. And there are enough cards that the 15th time you play is going to be different. And they have expansions. So that if you're like, oh, you know what? It's it's the 20th place starting to go stale. Well, you can get the uprising. You know, you can get another expansion. You can get another faction with their own units to spice it up a bit. For me, I, I'm not a big solo gamer. You, you know, to your point, you said, well, board gaming is such a social thing. And that's truly what I enjoy. You know, I'm in some of the solo groups. We had Martin on the show. He's big on solo gaming. But if I'm doing solo gaming, it's because I'm itching to play a game and I got nothing better to do. But when I'm itching to play a game, it's I'm itching to get the group together, get some food on, not maybe not on the game table, but you know what, you know what I mean? Have that camaraderie with my buddies. And you said that the, it plays up to four, correct? Yeah, it plays up to four. 
Does that have anything to do with the duration? Like, do you not want to play with four players because it makes the game incredibly long or is it a teaching problem? It's more of a teaching problem than a length problem. Um, the game being only four rounds, I, I think with two players, obviously it's going to be quicker. There's just less things that you have to have to concern yourself with. You know, with, with two more people, you have two more factions being mechanically uh, used each round. That said, it's not like there are several you know additions that that occur within the round because of having a higher player count. It's going to add a little bit of time per player, but it's not going to make the game go from say a two hour experience to to a five or anything absurd. It's a teaching problem. Now, if I had three other people that already know how to play, we're good to go. We could set it up and, and get it on the table, bang it out in a couple right. hours and have a really good time with it. This a scenario based game. I mean, it can be. You can set it like solo is definitely scenario based and they even have I get this hardcover book that gives you scenarios that you can play solo or co-op. If we're playing competitively, no, they don't have them there. You can just set up and play, but you can incorporate them in the solo experience uh, and get some scenario gaming going on. Why do you ask? Because that brings me into my section of what I've been playing lately. So what I've been playing lately is actually a campaign scenario-driven game. It is a game that is published by Funko Games and is designed by the Prospero Hall design team. Now, before I get into the game, I first want to talk about Prospero Hall for probably longer than you guys want to hear about it. But please share. In my opinion, IMO, as the kids would say, I think Prospero Hall is exactly what the board game community needs. I think Prospero Hall creates very fun games, very medium to medium light games, and they typically work with IPs. And that's gonna re- that's really going to drive people into buying their games. As far as I know, from what I've played, and I full disclaimer, I have not played every single Prospero Hall game out there, but I've played a lot of them. So you have things like Wonder Woman, that's going to drive people. Jaws, uh, Fast and Furious. There's a Fast and Furious like cooperative board game that like The Shining for, you know, if you're into Stephen King, Pan Am, there's Back to the Future. Prospero Hall, I think, is kind of not the hero that we need, but the hero we deserve. I forget how all that goes. <laughs> but anyways, uh, I think that, that what they do is great. And what they're doing for the board gaming community is great. Now, having said that, are they going to create the most clunkiest, heavy, crunchiest strategy game? No, they're going to aim for families, except for the except for Pan Am. If you check out Pan Am, that's probably on the more strategic side of the Prospero Hall wheelhouse, I suppose, of their body of work. Oh, they also have a Home Alone game. Um, they just have a bunch of stuff that's going to drive. They did The Shining. Yep, The Shining is like kind of a cooperative game with a like a mostly trader. medium light. And so I kind of want to give them a bunch of praise before I actually get into the game. They released a game that I've been playing with a group of people. It's a brand new game. It came out just this year in 2021. It is called Goonies Never Say Die. Goonies Never Say Die is a Target exclusive. Funko Games has partnered with uh, Target for a lot of their releases and games. And I happened to pick up, I think, one of the last copies in the area that I I live. I picked up a copy of Goonies Never Say Die. Now, the thematic value of Goonies is it's basically the movie. For those of you that that might not know, it's based on a 1984, I want to say, movie by Richard Donner. R.I.P. just passed away. It's an adventure game. It's about kids 
finding the secret treasure of One-Eyed Willie. As a kid who was growing up in the 90s, I watched a lot of the Goonies. I can quote a lot of the Goonies. It's just something that's got a huge nostalgia factor for me. And that's why I wanted to preamble about Prospero Hall and the IP connection that they have. Because if this wasn't Goonies, if it was some other, if it was Fern Gully or something, I would not be interested. So the theme is really going to drive people to this game. Well, you know what? They know what they're doing with these themes, the nostalgia theme. They're marketing these games to adults. These aren't games that are being marketed to kids. So if it was something that they were making for kids, they wouldn't do Goonies. They would go with something more contemporary. They'd have Dora or Peppa. You know, they, they would have something that's, that is for today's kids and they're not doing that they're trying to give you a, an actual board game you know if your average 10 year old group of 10 year olds cracked open a prospero hall game they'd be like i don't even know how to start playing this thing you know what i mean they'd hit the rule book and be like what i think they know what they're doing going with putting back to the future as the ip for that game and putting goonies for example as the ip for this one yeah those are two like 80s movies but i would push back on you a little bit patrick because I think that games like Horrified is basically, it's pandemic, but with a different theme, essentially. And Horrified is something that I think, and I don't work at Prospero Hall, they don't pay me, I have no clue, but I'm going to speculate that they really designed that game for families. I really do. I really think that they put wanted to put together a Horrified game, you know, with creatures that they could use legally, you know, the mummy and stuff like that, to give to families. Okay. Play on Halloween, like play on Halloween, or do you know, like a horror theme without the overt gore and stuff like Abomination, right. era, Frankenstein, other you know, other games like that. Yeah, they might be for adults, but I think they really want to hook the adults to get it to play with their kids and get it on oh, the table with their kids. Yeah, I think you're right. Home Alone's another one that someone that's you know as old as I am would be like, yeah, I love Home Alone, so I would pick that up and I would play that with my kids. I don't say, hey, Junior, kids, come would, here. Yeah. Give this a try with me. So in Goonies Never Say Die, it is a very light dungeon crawl game. And what I like about the game is because it knows what it is. And I know I'm jumping towards the end and I'll come back and kind of fill you in. I'm kind of jumping to the, kind of spoiling the ending. I do. Hey, I the do floor really is all yours. Just really tell me what it. happens at the end of the movie. I, I'm going to watch it later. Have you not seen Goonies? Yes, I've seen Goonies. Oh, I was going to say you're fired. Now, I, now I'm the only one left on the podcast. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about a game of Goonies. If I get this on the table, what can I expect? So how Goonies Never Say Die works is you're going to have one person that's designated as the GM. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that triggers a lot of people as the game master, but I hate to burst your bubble. It's actually Goondocks Master, but for all intents and purposes, yeah, it's the Game Master. So you're going to have one person that's going to sit out and basically run the game. Mm-hmm. Now, the game, as I said, at the, kind of at the top of the segment is a scenario. It is a campaign-driven game. You will set up scenario one. You will play scenario two. You'll play three, four, five. There are nine scenarios within the base game with some expansions that have been announced that are on the way. They're going to add some more scenarios. And essentially, you're playing, you know, I cannot get into spoiler. I'm not getting into spoiler territory. But essentially, I think you can guess you're kind of playing through the movie of Goonies. Like you got all the same characters. You got Data. You got Chunk. Sloth is in the game. You get the Fratellis. 
the Fratellis are yeah the 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 villains in some of the scenarios. So a lot of it is very scenario driven. So I've been playing with a regular group of all all females actually. So it's myself and three other ladies. I'm playing the GM and the other ladies are playing characters. It's a cooperative game or at least semi cooperative. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of one against all. And I'm trying to win the game by slowing them down, by not letting them achieve their objective. And of course, they're all working together to achieve the objective of whatever the scenario is. Now, there's two things that I like about the scenarios. One, off the top, just in the surface level, is ostensibly the characters go in not knowing what to do. The GM will read them a prompt and a little bit of flavor text. There's some narrative in the game and they will just start exploring. The board does not, it doesn't set up like seated at all. They have an opening room and then they will explore. Like I said, this is a dungeon crawl style game. Mm -hmm. So when they go into a different room or when they go into a cave, then the GM will then populate that room and say, okay, here's what you find. So they start the board pretty just blank, but nothing on it. And so it really does lean into heavy exploration. And the gals that I've been playing with have really, really, really enjoyed that aspect of finding what's to come, opening a door, and, oh, it's the Fratellis, you know, and things like that. The other thing that I like about, so point number two about the scenarios is that they're all very distinct. They're all very unique. Yeah, some of them are just typical, get from one spot to the board to the other spot. Of course, the players don't know that at the beginning of the the beginning of the game. They don't know what their objective is until they trigger something within the game. And the book will kind of tell the GM what to do. So it guides you along as far as what to populate, when things trigger, when to read certain narratives. If a character ever does this, then read this or do this. And so I, the two things that I really like is that the scenarios are very different. Some of them are basic. Some of them are not. Some of them have to deal with solving some clues. I'm trying to stay total out of spoiler country here. But they're all very different. They feel different. They don't necessarily play different because essentially the gameplay is the same throughout all of the scenarios. And full disclosure, I have only played up to scenario five at the time of recording this. So we're kind of in the middle of a campaign, but as the GM, I've obviously looked through and I've read ahead. You have an idea of what's coming. I have done my homework, sir. And I have an idea of what's going to happen and where the story's going. And it just looks fun. I can't wait to get to the next one. Mm -hmm. I can't wait to get into some riddles and clues about one-eyed Willie and things like that. Okay, so I'm a player in your campaign. What exactly am I doing in one of these campaign games? You know, we we don't know what's behind the the next door. There's a bit of exploration. But suppose I run into a bat or I run into a a baddie. What mechanically am I doing in the game? So how the gameplay works. So you're you're essentially talking about gameplay. Yeah, am I rolling dice? Am I, uh, you know, am I doing a dance? How am I I defeating the baddie? How am I moving from one to the next? You know, I've got to teach the rules. I just want to know exactly how I'll be playing. So essentially what you're asking about is the gameplay. And so how Goonies Never Say Die plays is very akin to a lot of Prospero Hall games. It's very simple. It's an uh, action point allowance system, which basically means, okay, you have two actions or three actions. In Goonies Never Say Die, it's two. How do you want to spend them? 
And so what happens is all the players get to take their turn in whatever order they want. There is no player order like to the left, to the left, or clockwise, counterclockwise. It basically is kind of like Arkham Horror where it's like whatever behooves us to be like, you should go first. That way I can come up behind you. So the players choose when they want to go. And that's actually a part of the strategy of the game. Once you have completed your turn, the next person will go. Then someone else will jump in and say, okay, now I can take my turn. Once everyone has taken their turn, then the goondocks master takes their turn and essentially it's your typical like monsters move Mm -hmm. doors open doors close they gain some tokens that allow them to play cards to have cave-ins and slow the players down basically do some somewhat nasty things to the players but how the gameplay works more specifically if you're a player in my campaign is you're allowed to action points i guess if you and how you want to spend them is very simple it's very much like prospero hall games you can use them to move you can use them to search inside of your the room that you're in and you can use them for combat combat dice based there's some dice there's also some what we call special abilities where people can say as per my ability they can do their ability so each character has their own special apma is what we call it So one of the biggest things in the game, outside of the exploration, because if you're going to go down to Target and buy Goonies Never Say Die, which, by the way, I recommend that you do, if you do pick up a copy, combat is something that is involved in the game. You are going to be running into nasties and some baddies, as we've already joked about, the Fratellis are in the Mm -hmm. game. That's not really a spoiler. And so how combat works is it is a dice. It is kind of a random dice thing where you do skill checks each character will roll these really great trans the translucent dice and they're red, uh, blue, and green. So reds are D6s, blues are D8s, greens are D12s. I really should fact check that. But you get eh, what I'm saying. There's kind of a t- there's a tiered system to the dice. So sure. if you're not as good at searching, you might roll two red dice which are d6s but the thing about the game is you're you're earning wish tokens by things that you do and you can always use your wish tokens to upgrade your dice and as you upgrade them they're going to have more successes on them rather than blanks wish tokens like what they found in the well in the movie when they're like these are other people's wishes yeah this one this one here this was my dream my wish and i'm taking (laughs) it back i'm taking them all back so essentially, at the end of the day, Goonies Never Say Die is a semi-cooperative game. You are going to need the same players. It's, so think of it as a campaign game. It's a very light dungeon crawl. Someone is going to have to sit out in air. I'm doing air quotes. So you're going to have to sit out and be the, the GM or the Goondocks master and kind of run the game. You know, you know for the, some the people, baddies. they look forward to that. That's the fun part. Like if I'm playing the game, I want to be the person that's running it, you know, being, Oh, the, you're one of those. Yeah. One I, of those I would like to do that, you know, cause you get to be the, like the holder of secrets. Like, Oh, I hope they go in here. They're not going to believe it. Don't you ever feel like you miss out on gameplay though? And just kind of sometimes. Like, cause this is a cooperative game. If you're not the GM, you're cooperating with your buddies or pals or girlfriend or boyfriend or mannequin or whoever you're playing with. <laughs> I guess I think, it takes me back to like hero quest. You know, it yeah. was fun to be the person in charge of, setting up the monsters and like yeah i don't know something about that that overlord role i really like it in games i like being that that player i'm kind of a bit of a storyteller as those of you that listen to my academy section there's a lot of stories that i integrate so 
I don't mind being the GM. I don't mind kind of being the storyteller for lack of a better term. So that's how the game essentially gets put together. You're going to have a GM that's going to be running the game. It is campaign driven. I recommend you play with all the same people. There are seven campaigns in the base game and they all tie into each other. So game one moves into, you know, game two and it's based off of, they're not just kind of, okay, who's the baddie of the week. It is a serialized version of the game where you are moving through a story so think of it as chapters in a book game one is chapter one game nine is chapter nine well let me ask you this when when you say that i have to imagine that this is not a very replayable game now never mind that in the box if you have say a dozen chapters you're going to get 12 plays out of this with four people and the game is not expensive so i'm not that worried about oh can i am i going to be able to play it again and again and again but you know, the campaign games like this, if you've played through it, or especially if you've been the, the goondocks master, you know right. everything about that first scenario, that second scenario. So a month or two from now with a new group, man, it's going to be hard for you to be one of the cooperative players and not be like, guys, guys, we need to go through this door. Could that be a problem? That is the biggest downside of this game. And it's the biggest downside of any campaign driven slash legacy whatever you want to call it game is that yeah the replayability is just not here i mean unless if you're going to give it away to someone else to play through and and that's fine you go i mean that's fine there's lots of games that are like that like the unlock series Mm -hmm. you can kind of repackage and give away this game is pretty much what they would call in the community a consumable game meaning once you have consumed the entire story it's not going to change it's pretty linear with the story. There's not a whole lot of like, oh, we took path A, so maybe I could play it again by going on like path B or making different choices. You're going to know, especially if you're the like me, if you're the GM, you're going to know where all the traps and triggers are to trigger things within the game. So it's it's really kind of a one in and done. It is not as you already said i'm kind of piggybacking off of what you're saying it's not an expensive game somewhere around 29.99 at target it's not super expensive you're going to get a lot of fun out of it you're going to have at least nine games maybe more because if players lose you you can reset it and uh, play through it again but at the end of the day when you are finished you're essentially finished you don't necessarily destroy anything you don't tear anything up you don't throw anything away, which is, you know, the best part of the legacy style games. You don't do any of that in this game, but the chapters are very linear. Now I'm going to juxtapose this very briefly with another game that is also a cooperative dungeon crawl-esque type game. It's by Fantasy Flight Games and it's called Lord of the Rings Journeys in Middle Earth. Yep, That is a game that I have played multiple times because there are branching narratives, if you will. There's kind of choice A or choice B. And so I can set it up a second time with a significant other or a different, you know, another friend and then say, hey, you know what? Last time we went this way. This time, is it okay if we go this way? And then you kind of experience how the story goes in a different manner based on Mm -hmm. your decisions. That is not in Goonies Never Say Died. But that's not necessarily me saying you shouldn't buy it. I'm just saying for what you get, like for what you pay for, it's a lot of fun. You're going to get a lot of hours of 
play out of this. If you're someone like Patrick that wants to be the GM, it gives you a book that you can read through that shows you all the secrets and all the dark things that happen within the game and all the traps and all the, the is it the, the booby traps or booty traps? Booby traps. Hey, Dana, where are you going? I'm saying booty traps. You mean booby traps. That's what I said, booby traps. Quiet. Yeah, that's what I said. I'm saying booty traps. And you're going to know all of those things. That's exciting. So for you, Patrick, this would be a, a really great game for you to get into as the GM. But I guess to circle back to answering your question from however long ago, it's a consumable game. Now, I must throw out there that Funko Games has announced an expansion. Oh, they're going to expand this. Yes, there's an expansion where they're adding the teenagers. There was a little bit of a blowback because there were no female characters represented within the game. And they're all in the expansion. So Andy and Stephanie, which are the, the two females, they're not in the base game. They are in the expansion. And the expansion does come with, I believe, three more scenarios. So Excellent. it'll tack on 10th, 11th, and 12th scenario once the expansion comes out. When it comes out, I don't know, sometime this, this year. So that's what I've been playing lately. It's been a lot of fun. The only downside to the game is two things. One, it's a consumable game. And two, it suffers from the D&D problem. You know what the D&D problem is? Tell me. You don't know what the D&D problem is? To me, there's plenty. <laughs> what is the it? D- the D&D problem is that it's nigh impossible to get more than two adults together in the same room at the same time on a consistent basis. So it does suffer from that aspect of like, okay, person A, B, and C is in, but uh, D's got to work an overnight shift. You need perfect lunar alignment. We started Clank Legacy with three people and we figured, oh, if we play it once a month, we'll be done in 10 months. We just played our sixth game and we've been going for over a year. Just because, and there's only three of us. There are three. I'm a stay at home dad. So my time is relatively open and it's tough. It's tough. That, that happens for a lot of groups, though. I'm, I'm sure that's not an issue. Goonies never say die. Thanks for bringing that one up. And I'm that much more excited to give this one a shot now. If I can ever get four people in the same place at the same time, this might end up being uh, one that the family gets to play. It's a very fun, enjoyable experience. Make way for the king. Good morning, Patrick. Is it time for us to record? Oh, oh. Scott, you caught us. Scott, Andrew got to join me for the first half of the show. Nice. What up, dude? Hey, Andrew. Yeah, I know you were busy, so I figured Andrew would join me today. Oh. Well, Andrew, I suppose Scott and I have to get on with the review today. We're going to be talking a little bit about Catacombs, third edition. Afterwards, you'll be joining us for the Academy. What are you going to tell us about today? Today, we're going to be talking about the game called Black Orchestra, which is a cooperative game set during World War II in Germany. Oh, sounds good. I'll see you in a bit. Thanks for having me on your show. Thanks for talking with me. Thanks for letting me talk with you guys. And hopefully we can do this again. Scott, you ready? Most certainly I'm already here. Why don't you give us a run through of the game that we're going to review today, Catacomb. Designed by Ryan Amos, Mark Kelsey, and Aaron West, and published in 2015 by Elzra, Catacombs is a dungeon-delving dexterity game for two to five players, with one player acting as the overseer, and the others taking on the role of the heroes. 
Catacombs is a dexterity game. It's played by flicking wooden discs on a board. We should also note that a game of Catacombs is meant to be several games, almost like a mini-campaign that plays in about one to two hours. Now, when setting up, the Overseer will select one Catacomb Lord to be the final boss, the Sorcerer, the Lich Lord, etc. The Overseer player takes the player board of the selected boss, as well as some cards that are specific to it. The other players each select a hero and get their player board as well. They get a health tracker and a disc representing their character, as well as rules card detailing their class and abilities, namely their shot sequence. We'll get there. Many heroes have additional starting equipment, though. The wizard, for example, starts the game with 10 spell cards that may be used throughout the game, as well as a large shield disc that gets to be repositioned after you flick the wizard disc on the board. Kind of like a blocker, if you will. Before starting the game, the Overseer will select rooms that the players will be encountering, starting with a room card from the easy difficulty stack and working up to the hard difficulty rooms. All said, there will be five rooms with baddies for the heroes to clear out, and a sixth and final Catacomb Lord's Lair, where the final boss is confronted. Finally, a merchant shop and a healer room are placed among the rooms for the players to have non-combat encounters. Okay, so everyone has their discs and we're ready for adventure. The Overseer will reference that first room card, which details what enemy discs are going to be placed into the room. Now each enemy disc is placed and their stack cards are gathered. The heroes have to start all on one edge of their side of the board, whereas the enemies are placed anywhere within the Overseer's half of the board. On a player's turn, more often than not, they'll be using a shot or movement ability of some sort, depending on their basic shot sequence. For a character like Zorik the Barbarian, the card simply shows a punch symbol. This means the player can flick the Barbarian disc and whatever it hits takes a point of damage. The Elf, on the other hand, has a move symbol followed by an arrow, meaning her disc is flicked, but it doesn't damage anything that it touches. After moving, instead, you take a small arrow disc. You place it next to her and you flick it in an attempt to deal damage to an enemy. Each character has a surprising amount of variety in the tactical way that a player might attempt to damage enemies and maneuver wisely. After the players have taken a turn, the Overseer activates each enemy according to its stack card. A Skeleton Archer, for example, simply has the ability to shoot arrows from next to its disc's position, whereas a Hydra can be moved and then shoot two large fireballs from wherever it sits. After all enemies have taken their turn, a new round begins. Play will continue until all monsters have been defeated, at which point the next room card is drawn, the appropriate enemies gathered, and the game continues. The final room, should the heroes reach it, contains the Catacomb Lord, and as you can imagine, they're quite powerful, and typically they're accompanied by several strong minions. Should the heroes manage to slay their foe, the game is over and they've won. On the other hand, if at any point in the adventure all the heroes are killed, the Overseer claims victory. Now I wanted to briefly mention the Merchant. See, after an enemy is defeated, the heroes collect an amount of gold shown on the enemy card, which can be spent at the merchant. This is basically a deck from which a handful of cards are drawn, available for purchase. The variability in catacombs goes to the next level here. A helm can protect you from arrows, while a bee familiar gives you an extra disc to flick, sort of to get in the way. You might have the option to buy a knife that adds additional damage when you flick using your basic move, or maybe you acquire an armadillo companion. You only get a handful to pick from, but these cards really spice up the game. I also wanted to talk briefly about the shot types in the game. I mentioned arrows and fireballs, which basically act as a second disc that you flick to deal damage without having to move your character in harm's way, but the game also includes ice shots, which freeze enemies, corrosion shots, which will destroy weapons, poison shots, regeneration shots, and more. 
Put simply, there are a ton of ways to flick a disc in Catacombs. Now, as with all of our walkthroughs, there is more to this game. The Merchant in the Healer Room? There are a half a dozen other rooms that you might opt to play with instead, each one unique. When setting up the room, the boards have holes in them where you can set pillars, basically large discs, creating an obstacle for both sides. Heck, there are even red fire pillars, which damage anything that touches them. Nevertheless, I hope this walkthrough gives you an idea of the high adventure your brain and fingernail will be embarking upon when you get this game to the table. Now, there's only one way to truly dissect a game level-up style, so let's give the 8-bit breakdown to... Catacombs! Thank you, Patrick, for the walkthrough of Catacombs. Now it's time for us to get into the nitty-gritty, our 8-bit breakdown. Yes, sir. Let's start off with you, the art and components. What are your All right. thoughts on it? Yeah, giving me the floor. Uh, okay, art and components of Catacombs. Let's start with the components here. You, get, uh, you have a few different boards, and then you have discs that you put stickers on. Now, this is one of those games that you get the discs, Scott, and you don't... I, I'm the one that produced this game for us to review, so when you <laughs> saw it, it was in its complete form, they give you the page of stickers, and you got to peel the sticker off and then put it on the disc and then peel a sticker off, put it on it. No big deal, right? But there's like 50 discs in this game. It's a lot of peeling and I'm the type that I always get nervous because I always put it slightly off. <laughs> all right, all right. I'm glad you're saying that because I know my OCD would be going through the roof here because it's like, yeah, we get to put on stickers. But what if I mess that one up? Exactly. And then I freak out. <laughs> <laughs> well, the game's got a ton of cards that are going to have your stats for the monsters, the items. Uh, nothing bad, but nothing special here. Just cards. Uh, I really like, though, did you notice uh, the boards? There's three different ones in the game that have cutouts for the pillars. Yes, you're playing a game where it's little discs that you're flicking through everything. But it, they still want to make it like a 3D miniature game. So mm -hmm. they still do it in a way that you can imagine that you actually have that figure there. You're in this grand hall with these columns. They make it work really, really well in your mind whenever you're playing this game. Hey, Future Patrick here. I figure it would make sense to point out that the game also comes with little cardboard assembled walls that you put around the board so that whenever you flick a disc, there's a blocker to keep it from flying off the end of the table. In my case, I just went to Lowe's and I bought some poplar boards and made my own wooden walls, and I would recommend you do the same. What did you think of the art? It was a little simplistic, but it fit the game. The, the flames that you would have, the monsters that you would have, even though it was a little cartoony, it fit the game well. So I, I think if you're playing a game with ultra-realistic art, it almost feels like that would be a waste for it. Yeah, I think what you're trying to convey is that it was an intentional decision to have really simple art. Is that fair? Yes, yes. It, it, it was one of those things where they wanted to have it good enough that it fit well with the game, not to the point of, well, I think that one there should have seven freckles on the side of the right side <laughs> right. of the face. Whatever they did, whatever decision they made, it worked. Well, art is subjective, and I, especially the art in Catacombs is suggestive. You said cartoony. I wrote down clip art e, Like, it was yes, that yes. simple. But I think that this aesthetic actually works with this game. And I 
I said it where you were reading it and I'm looking through my notes. I'm like, wow, he's saying exactly what I said. I said, if they had serious <laughs> art, I could play this dexterity game as though I was, you know, in this dungeon adventure, but the playful art allows me to approach it from a more fun, like beer and pretzels angle. And exactly. I think that they knew that that's what they were shooting for. I don't like the art. I think the art's not good, but I think for this game, it's appropriate. To your point, if it was super serious, it'd be like, wait a minute, you, you guys spent all this time and energy on art. And for that matter, the pictures on the discs, for example, are tiny. If they were super detailed, mm-hmm. you wouldn't be able to see them. Kind of like earlier in the episode, I mentioned with Cloudspire, you have this beautiful art on a poker chip, so you can't really admire it. They might, re- might have run into that problem here. So a couple colors and a very simple depiction of, I don't know, a centaur works in this game. Everything works in this game. If it was too serious, it would take away the fun aspect of this. Let's move on to bit number two, theme and immersion. When you play this game properly, you set up a row of cards that act as the various like rooms of the dungeon that you're adventuring into. And some of the cards represent a shop or a game of chance, a healer, or some other encounter outside of the actual dexterity dungeon crawl of the game. So what do you think about the theme and immersion in Catacombs? I think it goes right along with the art and components. There's a little bit, but still they did just enough to make it that fun beer and pretzels type of game. Yes, you're in a dungeon. You're trying to get through this dungeon to the other side and escape. It's not a very immersive game, but once again, they do just enough to make it feel good. If it was any better, I think it would cloud up the the game. If they try to get too many rules in there and try and get you too immersed in the game, it would take away the fun aspect of it. That's my thoughts on it. So we got basically a fantasy theme here. Not, nothing too wild. We'll call it generic fantasy, and it is. But, <laughs> you know, on the other hand, I'm actually able to get some immersion here. And I'll tell you where it comes from. I'll give you a good example. Mm-hmm. When I got to pick my four heroes, uh, in our playthrough, you were the baddie, and I got to pick four heroes. One of the ones that I picked was Rusan the Chicken. Now, everybody's going, wait a minute. You said basic fantasy. Why is there... So you have a barbarian, an elf, a rogue, a thief, etc. But they also have a couple of kind of whimsical ones, one of which is a skeleton, and one of the, uh, one of the heroes you can play is Rusan the Chicken. Scott, we played with the Caverns of Soloth expansion, so we may have had some pieces. I don't know if uh, if Rusan's in the base game or if he's in the expansion, but nevertheless, I had a chicken. He's silly, uh, but one of his power plays, one of the cards that he starts the game with is Wings of Fury, which basically once per room, once per encounter, you can use your Wings of Fury, which in this case, it's you get to flick four times. And I just picture a chicken fluttering with his feathers going everywhere just going wild the barbarian has a double hit axe card he's got the the dual wielding axes so that you can cash that card in and basically the the barbarian just like smash 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 you know start axing things apart and it's all represented by you flicking a disc but mechanically it makes sense there's like a like a mechanical immersion in the game if the wizard's gonna uh, shoot a fireball what do you do? You put a disc next to the wizard, wherever it sits, and you, and it's a little fireball disc, too. It's it's red. The wood is painted red, and the sticker that you put on is red, and you flick that. And it's like, oh, okay, so he's, you know, he's shooting it from here. There's little arrows for the elf. Mechanical immersion. You heard it here first. Yeah, I think that you really did nail something on that as far as the immersion. It would be a completely different game if you're being a wizard shooting a fireball, and rolling a die to see if you hit. Mm -hmm. Whenever you actually do the dexterity, 
it does actually bring you into the game a little bit. And and I didn't really think about this whenever I first made my first comments. It's really like you're trying to aim that fireball and hit that thing. It's not like you're just taking a chance on the statistics of rolling a die to see if you hit. This is like you're actually aiming, trying to shoot the person. So it does have a bit more immersion than I originally gave it credit for. Yeah, the immersion here doesn't come from mathing out your turn or calculating your odds. You have to come up with a plan, and then it's on you to execute it. And you know where else this comes in is what this is a great game with three or five players. So you're going to have one, uh, we'll call it the uh, the overlord, one dungeon master who's controlling all the bad guys, and then there's four heroes in a run through. So if you're playing two players, you each have about an equal amount of you know time for your turn. If you play with three players, then each of the good guys controls two characters. And yet if you could even play this with five, which I've done before, and each of the good guys gets one hero. At the start of a round for the heroes, you're talking with each other. Okay, you take your barbarian, you flick him here, hit that, move him out of the way. You'll be protected behind the pillar. I'm going to shoot a fireball at him once he's in the clearing with the wizard, and then I'll move in. I'll reposition my shield to protect us both. So you come up with this grandiose plan. And it Sometimes sometimes it works out exactly as you have planned, and it's just like that stand-up cheering moment. And then so many times it doesn't. But that's immersive because you you know the heroes are talking with each other. You know, the, the mm-hmm. players around the table are, are actually working together. You can't quarterback it either. Yeah, that time that you flick and your finger just gets stuck on the board and the <laughs> and the axe goes like an inch in front of you. You, you all look it. at each other like what well, do come we do on, now? Carl. <laughs> How about bit number three, complexity? There's not much complexity. It's the amount of complexity you want to put into it. You have to flick a disc and achieve what your goal is. There's not much there. But the complexity, like you said, comes in whenever you're discussing it with each other, what you're going to do, your plans that you're going to do to Who's going to overtake. flick first? Yes, Which yes. cards are you going to use? There's skill instead of complexity. That's a great way of putting it there, the skill over complexity. I think that's a, definitely a great way of saying that. There are a bunch of shot types, though. You have that shot reference on the back of the rulebook, and that has to be handy. So basically, if you're moving, it's that little like triple chevron circle. If you're attacking, it's that white punch, that fist. But what if that's green? What does that mean? What if it's yellow and there's two of them? What does that mean? Well, in this case, the green one is poison. The yellow means that you get to double shot and you're allowed to hit the same thing twice. So you do have a lot of symbols that you're going to have to keep track of what they mean. Yes, Speaking of that, with the rule book, our bit number four, you were the one that was kind enough to teach it to us. So what were your thoughts on the rule book? Honestly, I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> it's got a lot of the things that I look for, but it's structured really awkwardly, Scott. Mm-hmm. The shot types, let's get right right into that. There are a lot of shot types that a player can make. And after a while, I started to confuse what symbols meant what. And whenever you haven't played it yet, and you're just looking at this reference, and it's like a corrosion shot hurts their weapon, where's... What do they mean? Where's their weapon? We just have discs. Oh, it's on the player board. Like, it's hard to mentally, in your mind, put it all together, what all of these things mean. It's it's crazy because once you play it once, man, you know what everything is. But it's hard to, well, it was hard for me to put everything together based 
only on the rulebook. They mm. could have had a more clear demonstration of how to set up that campaign of five dungeons, that well, five rooms in your dungeon, and which cards to choose and which enemy levels correspond with which rooms you choose. So one of the options is like you look at your, your level one dungeon card and it says what enemies you're going to be spawning in that dungeon that the overlord picked at the beginning of the game. Sometimes instead of having the image of the disc that you're getting, like if you need orcs, it'll have a little orc face and you just go get all the orcs. Easy. Sometimes it has like a level one symbol, which means you get to pick any one of the level one guys, but then you got to go shuffling through the cards. You got to figure out, okay, which one's a level one. I felt like it could have been a little less clunky, kind of, kind of a minor nitpick. It's odd because I think if you're taught how to play, this game is unbelievably simple, but if you have to learn it from scratch from the rule book, I thought it was a little difficult. Well, that leads right into the next bit, the learning curve. And this one's going to be on you. Yeah, and you nailed it on the head there. Your ability to teach is really very, very good. You sound almost like a game show host whenever you're teaching the roles. (laughs) Thanks. Well, well, I mean that in a good way, that you do it and you make it interactive. You make it very engaging whenever we're listening. So I think that the learning curve was, thanks to your teaching, very, very easy. It was self-explanatory. Whenever you're looking at things, looking at the information in front of us, we could definitely play it. And it was a good time. So I, I thought it worked out very well. Well, let's factor out my teaching and let's say that you just had someone uh, like you were watching a how to play video or someone kind of uh, kind of bland, you know, kind of mm-hmm. monotone explaining the game. Really, 90% of this is, do you know how to flick a disc with your finger? True. True. And, and then you can cross all the little bridges when you when you approach them. Mm-hmm. If you're looking at it from a point of view of someone who's just very monotone teaching you how to play the game and how exciting it can be, yes, I'm just flicking the disc. You need to bring what you want to get out of that game into learning it. If you're looking at it that you're a barbarian going in and you're going to swing your axes around, it really makes you more engaged to learn this game and a lot more fun. So the learning curve, it's not that difficult as long as you're in the right mindset to play this game. Let's move right on to replayability and variability, bit number six. Now, dexterity games are tricky because no matter what you do to differentiate it, the core dexterity mechanic, in this case flicking, is always going to be the same. So Mm -hmm. what do we have here that's going to spice the game up and make it a little bit different for each time? You've got different heroes with different Mm -hmm. shot arsenals. So the barbarian feels remarkably different from the thief who feels remarkably different from the wizard and Rusan the chicken. (laughs) (laughs) You've got different kinds of enemies. Now you played the baddie and you saw your rats had that poison shot. They just do a straight up shot, flick the rat. If you hit my disc, my guy takes one damage and one poison. On the other hand, you had, uh, oh geez, you had hydras, I think, and you were hiding behind pillars and they got to sling fireballs at me. So you've got this unit behind a pillar and you're putting a little disc. It's, I think they even give you a little measuring thing. It's like one inch. You have to place the fireball one inch away from your disc and then you get to flick it. That's how you simulate the hydra is shooting a fireball at my piece. So one inch that cleared the fire, that that cleared the, the pillar that he was hiding behind. So you just tucked them back there and shot fireballs from around those pillars at me. So different shot types for different enemies as well. You have different dungeon campaign setups, not just the rooms. There's three different boards. 
with holes mm -hmm. cut out for you to place pillars. And you can align those in one direction or the other, and you can flip it upside down. So you've got something like a dozen different combinations of how you can set up the room. But the actual rooms at the start of this game is the bad guy. You get to pick what's going to be the level zero room. What's going to be the one? What's going to be the next one? What's going to be the two? And then your final room is based on whatever ultimate bad guy you pick, which for the record is another variable. <laughs> You yeah. have items at that shop. Oh, I'm not. Uh, let me keep going because this is the biggest one. The items at the shop provide you with so much variety. You get to pick six cards whenever you visit the shop from a deck of probably 40. And they can be any number of things. You can buy a helmet that's going to protect you from arrow shots. You can buy something that'll prevent uh, fire damage. So in the case with Scott with his Hydra behind the pillar flicking fireballs at me, well, maybe I can get the guy who I purchased uh, like a fire cloak with so that the fireballs don't hit him. You can buy an elixir that'll heal damage. You can buy sidekicks, extra heroes like the bee or the armadillo. You can get them to... to Join the party with you. Sometimes they get in the way. Sometimes they can actually deal damage. All these aside, I don't think Catacombs is super replayable. I mean, at the end of the day, so much of the game is based on whether or not you can flick a disc. And at some point, it's like, okay, I flicked enough discs. Uh, I'm not breaking this game out weekly or anything. I want to play it, and I have a blast. But then I want to put it away till next year. Like, the playthrough of Catacombs, I think, is more of an event than a game. You can have the floor now. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you that, yes, this would be a game that you burn on on very quickly if you play it constantly. Your strategy of putting your character together and making that character with the right armor, the right weapons, everything like that, yes, that's important. But like you said, whenever it all comes down to it, it's based on how well can you flick a disc. Yeah, I agree that this is not one of those games that you're going to be constantly bringing out saying, hey, guys, let's play Catacombs. Again. <laughs> yes. But it's something where if you have a monthly game night or something, that could be a fun thing to either start the night or end the night. All right, let's take our next step in Catacombs and play it and pick up where we left off. I'm not looking at it afterwards saying, hmm... I should have done this. I can't wait to play this again to see how this strategy would work. Yeah, it's not like you have a whole bunch of branching strategies. Like, well, this time I'm going to try the, the wheat strategy. Or this time I'm going to mm -hmm. see if I can connect all kinds of, uh, of you know what I'm getting. I'm going to play yes. the big money strategy. Or I'm going to try and raise the heat. No, it's, you know, you can come up with a different build. You can come up with some different shots and items. But at the end of the day, it's... Did you flick the disc? You know, if, if you right. cite the central mechanic or the central strategy as being good at flicking the disc into the other guy's disc, well, that is that's 90% of the strategy. Anything beyond that is just like a small variable. Well, let's just swing right into bit number seven. Any downsides you found from this game? Well, obviously, dexterity games, uh, as we said, they're 90% of it is flicking the disc. So obviously it's going to be kind of limiting to someone who's a klutz. And we hear this often, but I don't think it's very fair. You know, a lot of people don't like dexterity games because it's not what we think of whenever we think of like a Euro game or even an Ameritrash game where you're trying to use your brain to, to do really well at the game. A really heavy thinker, uh, a, a really heavy thinker of a game is going to be tough for an idiot. A negotiation game is going to be tough for a pushover. 
a dexterity game is going to be tough for someone who lacks dexterity. You know, I mean, it's just a different skill that you have to tap into. So it can be a downside if you don't care for dexterity games. In a five-player game, if you're playing a hero, most of the time you're not actually playing. You get your one flick per round or your one, we'll say your one turn per round. Sometimes that's more than just one flick, but sometimes that's that's all it is. So I do like it more at two or three players to balance out the play time. Mm-hmm. What do yeah, you think? If you're not good at dexterity games, you aren't going to do that well. And if you do play with more people, there is that downtime feature. I mean, you could do that one shot and then you're done for 10 minutes or something, depending on how many people are playing. So that can really drag things down. So you don't have that constant excitement of let's go here and go here. You don't have that inertia building up and having you push forward and everyone join together at one thing to make that massive push to beat the overlord. So I think that that is definitely a a downside there with the game. Now you had the chance to be the GM basically in our game. You were playing the bad guys. There's something that happens in games that are uh, many versus one, like a 4v1. Let's take it back to like playing Hero Quest as kids. You have this, this feeling when you're the bad guy that your job isn't necessarily to win. Your job is to present a challenge and make it fun for the heroes. Did you feel like that was the case? It was interesting in that I didn't really have a goal to accomplish. The only goal was to stop everyone from coming in. Mm -hmm. So your happiness, your glad level, whatever you want to call it, of winning this game is sufficiently different from what the other players are doing. The other players have this goal that they need to accomplish. And it's like, let's go for, to get the grail, let's go to get the jewels, the gold, whatever it may be. Meanwhile, I don't really have a goal. My only goal is to stop you from getting Play spoiler. And you're just like, all right, I'm just going to ruin everyone else's time. When we played and I was sort of teaching the game and, you know, Mm -hmm. we did a run through, we set up random rooms. So your room number zero, your room one, two, et cetera, uh, the difficulty levels of the rooms, we set those up at random. So if we had one room that was a whole bunch of poison guys and you dealt us all some poison damage, that's great. And that carries over to the next room, but it Mm -hmm. was random. So we didn't see any more poison going forward. So it's like that whole room for you did nothing. If you wanted to, you could set up the game and have the level zero all the way to the end be poison enemies. And whenever you get to set up your pieces, you know, the heroes, we all had to put our guys on the edge of the board, but you got to put them anywhere. I was Mm. playing this with Mike and Mike wanted to be the bad guy. So whenever he's setting up his pieces, every single one of them, he would put right behind a pillar and he'd use all fire slinging guys. It's like, okay, so you're basically (laughs) forcing me to go back there to get you know, basically a barrage of fireballs. Like, come on, man, you know, get, give me a hit or two. Give me a couple guys in the open to, to, to make it fun. There's a little mm-hmm. bit of, of an onus on the bad guy to make the game fun for the good guys, make it so that they're not overwhelmed and just being, being defeated. But then I again, thought. that takes away from the overlord in that you can't play your game. You're trying to play the game to make everyone else have fun. So you're kind of like the tour guide or whatever, making sure that they go to the right stores when they go to the island, whenever they leave the cruise ship. Go Mm -hmm. to this store, go to this store, do this, you'll have fun, do this, you'll have fun. I don't feel if I'm playing a game, I should adjust my strategy to make sure that everyone else has fun. 
Maybe I'm going to choose a game so that everyone has fun. But once I do that, I'm going to play that game. This one here, it almost feels like you need to set it up in order for everyone else to have fun once you choose the game. You're more like the facilitator of the yes, game. Yes, yes. Well, speaking of all this talk about fun, let's move to bit number eight. Was it fun? And who is this game for? Scott. I will say it was fun. We had a good time. We had a lot of laughs with it while we were playing. It was a good time. It's not one that I would go back and revisit, like we said earlier, constantly. You aren't trying to break the game. There's The goal of the game is really based on who you're going against. Mm -hmm. It's fun while it's there. It's not one of those ones that I want to keep going back over and over and over and over again. Who's it for? I think the thing that would be good with this is for people that want to play a role-playing game but don't really have the stick-to-itiveness of playing a role-playing game where you can still play the whole thing of positioning everyone where you're talking amongst your party. You go and it's a campaign. There. Yeah. You go over there next to the pillar so you can line up a shot there and you go over there to shield the area over there so we can come up behind you. So you're making the plans like you would in a role-playing game, but you're not so invested in it and taking all that time of setting up and planning it and making sure everyone has that day off so you can spend eight hours playing D&D. This mm -hmm. is a nice one-off without all the extras of like a descent or anything like that where you have tons of stuff to set up. It's, it's got a low barrier of entry. Yeah. It's quick, it's relatively simple to jump in there and play, and it's it's a nice way to scratch your itch for a dungeon dive without having to get out all the miniatures and all the scenery and everything else to play. I like Catacombs every time I play it. In fact, I love Catacombs. This fills a niche in my collections that other games don't. I think part of the reason for the love of Catacombs, though, is that I play it once every six months, mm -hmm. maybe. So it does sort of have that that epic event status. You know, it's not a weekly right. game that I play, and I think that might help me prop it up on that that pedestal. There's epic moments every playthrough. There's that one pivotal shot that everyone's gathering around the table. Everybody's leaning in. Someone's got out their phone so that we can watch it back in slow motion to see if they actually nicked something. There's masterful combo shots that are going to happen on one turn and then the next turn the same player shanks their disc right into the path of the gelatinous cube, which didn't come up in our game, but I think I showed you that big green yes, cube that you yes. can flick. That's just, <laughs> they have a gelatinous cube. Who's it for? That's a little bit trickier. If you have a beer and pretzels type of group, you're going to enjoy catacombs. If you're playing with a younger crowd, this has an act for putting players on a more level playing field. If you're part of the Euro gamers and thinkers for the next generation of biochemical engineering, you probably don't have the itch for catacombs that it intends to scratch. Uh, it's a game that's meant to be kind of lighthearted, but still capable of producing stand up and cheer moments. And it does it for me every time. I love catacombs. Hi guys, I'm Andrew Davidson with AsPermyAbility.com. Once upon a time, there was a beautiful girl with shoulder-length hair, bright eyes, and pale complexion. Being born fourth to a family of six, the beautiful girl grew up caring for her brothers and sisters. Her mother and father never divorced. In fact, despite having enough children to start a hockey team, 
Mother and father were quite affluent. The beautiful girl was raised Lutheran. She remained loyal to her faith and attended Lutheran services and church events religiously, uh, pun intended. At the age of seven, she began elementary school and lived a carefree childhood. She smiled and laughed a lot and enjoyed being outside on sunny trips with her family. In her early years, she was fond of white sundresses and pearl necklaces. The beautiful girl enjoyed her innocence. It was a time of sunshine, cherry lollipops, and colorful rainbows everywhere. However, high school would prove to be a difficult task for the girl. At the age of 12, the beautiful girl began attending an all-girls school. In high school, the girl suffered the emotional slings and arrows quite common within the teenage years. Her enthusiasm gave way to sadness. She could not establish any friends at her new school. To deal with her dismal situation, the beautiful girl became an avid reader, always with her nose in a book and her head in the clouds. She studied subjects such as philosophy and theology. Because of this obsession, the girl's grades plummeted and she barely graduated high school. Well, once high school was out of the way, her and her older brother attended college, where she studied biology and philosophy. Now, contrary to high school, college wasn't a lonely experience. The beautiful girl and her brother found other like-minded individuals that enjoyed philosophy, literature, art, music, and theology. The group would take outings to hike, climb, ski, or go swimming. Other times, they would attend music festivals, plays, and lectures. The beautiful girl who loved animals and flowers was smiling again. Unfortunately, the college system was changing. Universities implemented far, far too much political indoctrination. This did not settle well with the free-thinking mind of the beautiful girl and her friends. To challenge the system was to challenge the government. In response, the collection of friends formed a group entitled The White Rose. The White Rose movement created content and writings encouraging students towards nonviolent resistance of the insufferable indoctrination on students by their academic institution. The girl and her White Rose movement used philosophy and theology to argue against the ever-changing political movement by encouraging passive resistance through intellectual arguments. The beautiful girl, our lovely protagonist, and White Rose members were rounded up by government officials. In fact, because she was only a girl, she wasn't touched by the officials. Uh, they wanted just the boys. However, in an act of heroism, the beautiful girl with the shoulder-length hair, bright eyes, and pale face threw herself at the officials and assumed full responsibility as the sole operative of the White Rose movement. Instead of going free, our beautiful girl was arrested for treason, sent to trial, and executed by guillotine four days later. The girl in this story is Sophia Magdalena Scholl. Sophia Scholl was born in Germany during the spring of 1921. By the time Scholl entered secondary school, the country gave way to complete, absolute Nazi madness. The basic tenets of education took a back seat to Nazi indoctrination and propaganda tactics. Scholl disliked what the schools were teaching. To successfully graduate secondary school, Scholl wrote an essay entitled, The Hand That Moved the Cradle Moved the World 
loosely inspired by the William Ross Wallace poem. Scholl, along with her older brother, Hans, Willie Graf, Christoph Propes, and Alexander Schmorl were core members of the White Rose organization. As members, they created pamphlets encouraging nonviolent, non-aggressive tactics to resist the Nazi machine. Not only did the Scholl succeed in building the masses up to resist the Nazis, but they did so without harming a single person. They never invoked violence and never threatened those they spoke about. One day, while distributing White Rose pamphlets at the University of Munich, our lovely gang ran into the Gestapo, the secret police. Uh, the janitor saw the kids poking around campus and alerted the Gestapo. If Scooby-Doo has taught us anything, it's that you can never, ever trust the janitor. Although the Gestapo focused on grabbing the men, Scholl confessed and assumed full responsibility. They were arrested on February 18, 1943. Trial took place on February 21st of the same year where Judge Roland Freisler forbid testimonies from the defense. Wait, hold up, hold up, time out. Can you imagine being arrested for writing pamphlets that encourage people to distrust the system of the government by doing no harm, or wishing zero ill will upon anyone? Then, to make matters worse, you're charged with treason and revoked any right to provide your own testimony in your defense. In today's day and age, where Americans are given a legal right to defend themselves against charges, or if outside the courtroom, utilize social media platforms such as Twitter to call upon sympathetic ears, Scholl's story is part and parcel to the tight fascist grip slowly squeezing the country into anorexic brainwashed Nazi zombies. The next day, February 22nd, 1943, Sophia Magdalena Scholl was convicted of treason and executed a few hours later. She was 19 years old. Scholl's final words were said to herself overheard by a prison official walking her to the guillotine. Such a fine sunny day, and I have to go. But how many are dying on the battlefield in these days? How many young promising lives? What does my death matter if through us thousands of people are awakened and stirred to action? Hans Scholl, the older brother, and Christoph Probst were beheaded right behind Sophia. Willie Graf, also arrested for treason, suffered the sting of the guillotine on October 12, 1943. Alexander Schmorl, also executed by guillotine on July 13th, 1943. Graf and Schmorl were the oldest of the White Rose executions, reaching the ripe old age of 25. Keeping with history, but turning to Hollywood, Valkyrie, directed by Brian Singer of X-Men directorial fame and starring Tom Cruise as Klaus von Stauffenberg, tells the story of the July 20th, 1944, plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler, a man who literally needs no introduction. Despite Cruz's lackluster performance and transient German accent, I highly recommend Valkyrie. Operation Valkyrie was an incredibly thought out and detailed assassination attempt. But as they say, more moving parts, more broken pieces. The plan was for Klaus von Stauffenberg to attend a military meeting with a bomb in his briefcase. Stand next to Hitler, 
get called away by an important incoming telephone call and hit the road ASAP before the bomb triggers. Bombs didn't have digital timers back then, so it was a crapshoot if the bomb would explode early, late, or never at all. I won't spoil the rest for you, but then again, if you know anything about history, you already know how it ends. Did you know that every single one of Adolf Hitler's girlfriends committed suicide? Yeah, even his wife, Ava Braun, took cyanide capsules. Furthermore, how in the bloody hell did Adolf Hitler, the man accused of mass genocide and crimes against humanity, able to get married? And yet I'm still single. If you are listening to this and you're a woman, riddle me this, Batman. If you had to choose only one person to get married to, Hitler or myself, who would you choose? Go. Also, did you know that there were 42 documented assassination attempts made on Hitler? And I thought I had it bad. I've only had a couple of real intense and serious stalkers, although they prefer to be called boundary-challenged individuals, but nothing to groan about in the shadow of 42 assassination attempts. Is this what my father meant when he instructed me as a teenager how life is all about perspective? Hmm. Anyway, in Black Orchestra... Players form their own group of anti-Nazi Germans, and yes, Sophia Scholl and Klaus von Stauffenberg are playable character roles. Working together to assassinate Hitler before every player is exposed and thrown in jail, do not collect $200, or time runs out and the war is over, akin to other games, Black Orchestra is a cooperative game. One does not go rogue and simply walk into the Reichstag armed to the teeth, To get to Hitler, just like Stauffenberg, you'll need help from your friends. Not only does Black Orchestra look amazing, but it's incredibly thematic. The artwork, components, and pieces are all fantastic. The event cards represent historical events as war raged on, spilling blood between the Axis and Allied powers. The game challenges its players with balance. To become trustworthy enough to get close to Hitler... You'll need to be highly motivated and not suspicious. Trust me, it's not as easy as it sounds. Sometimes you have to give the appearance of being a good little Nazi and help further their cause. As a reward, your suspicion level drops. See? Balance. Black Orchestra, as with 42 documented assassination attempts, requires a myriad of conditions to be perfect to successfully execute a death plot and live to tell the tale. Will you use your tale for good or evil? Personally, I would use it exclusively to get free drinks and impress women. Oh, so your last boyfriend never left his dark and moldy basement because he was obsessed with socializing with his buddies on World of Warcraft? Wow, sounds terrible. Hey, let me tell you about this one time I killed Hitler. Wow, uh, Andrea, I, thank you so much for everything you just did in the Academy this time for Black Orchestra. It makes it brings your game to a whole new level whenever you're playing this and you know the things that are going on in the background. There's an investment in the characters, huh? Oh, man, knowing the background of it, if you were in that time, would you be able to do what these people did and stand up the way they did? It's a great way of learning history without just reading a book. Whenever you're playing it, you get to learn the history that way. 
it's such a more immersive way to learn history. And I, that was fantastic. You know, we reviewed Black Orchestra back in episode 21, and I remember that is a very thematic, very immersive game. You feel tense. Mm-hmm. You feel the pressure. You need to be motivated, but you need your suspicion to be low. You know, you're on the edge of your seat playing that game. And whenever you have the opportunity to peek behind the curtain at who these characters are. Hey, Future Patrick here. Andrew pointed out to me after the fact that Sophia Scholl is a character that you get in one of the character packs, an expansion for Black Orchestra. She's not in the base game, but she is playable through those character packs. You know, this isn't uh, this isn't fantasy land character. This is an actual person. Mm-hmm. And not just an actual person. This is someone who was hung for, yeah. for doing what she did. That's, uh, it puts skin in the game. You know what I mean? You you start to actually care that much more about the stakes in your playthrough of Black Orchestra. Thank you so much, Andrew. Great, yes. great Academy segment. Now I want you to do one for all of the other characters in Black Orchestra. <laughs> <laughs> Brave adventurers, Mondo Games has joined our party. Get 10% off your purchase with Mondo Games using promo code LEVELUP, L-E-V-E-L-U-P. You can go straight to their website or just click the Mondo button on our homepage at levelupgamepodcast.com. Want to expand your options in Unmatched? Enjoy a solo game of A Gentle Rain. Or maybe you're getting fired up for The Thing, Infection at Outpost 31. Don't just score some loot, get 10% off with promo code LEVELUP. Well, Scott, we still have adventures on the horizon to talk about. Are you ready? Hey, I'm ready to go wherever you lead us. Scott, before we get things kicking off, some of our recent adventures on the horizon, we talked Soda Smugglers. It has funded. We did a side quest on Iridia, and it is funded to the tune of like $1.3 million. So we're having some hits on the show, and hopefully that keeps on rolling. Most definitely. That is those are incredible numbers there that they're doing. And it's so great to see that gaming is still such a strong, strong hobby for people. Now, I saw you had in the notes something about dice. Now, this isn't on the horizon. These are already done, but you wanted to bring them up. Yeah, they had sent out an email. And I'm not a big RPG player. I'll be honest. I have not really played role-playing games at all. Mm-hmm. But the Dice of Death and Dismemberment... I thought this was just such a freaking clever idea. This is a set of 12-sided dice that you get. And depending on where you got injured, you roll a die to see what the injury is. Like, if you got injured in your hand, you can roll a die. Did you break your arm? Did you break a finger? Did you slash an artery in your wrist? Uh, <laughs> was it an arrow through your uh, <laughs> through your palm? Yeah, oh, it's, it's got these it's, little it's, illustrations on. These are funny. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny little things. I mean, if you get hit in the head, do you have a scar now on the side of your face? Did you get your tongue removed? There's all sorts <laughs> of things that can happen, and I just think it's one of those things that just adds so much more. Whenever you go back like months from now, oh, yeah, I remember that time that you broke your toes running into the wall in the dungeon. Oh, yeah. Or how about that time that you dropped that that dagger into your foot? How's that feeling? 
It's got uh, here for $10 the bludgeoning critical hit set. Good for clubs, smalls, maces, heavy quarter staffs, flails, <laughs> boulders thrown by giants, huge stone stab, corridor traps, and of course, the beloved Warhammer. And I'm looking at these dice. So the one for head, it just shows like a little illustration of of, uh, of a mall. And there's the back of the head. And instead of the eye, it's got the X. And mind you, these are just little like line drawings. Then the one he's getting hit in the mouth, what he's getting hit in the nose. So instead of like, oh, you got hit by this, roll to roll a couple of dice and then consult a chart you just roll the one die you lean in oh no where's it going oh crap i took a mall in the back of the head <laughs> it's that would get you in the game and, and make it go a lot quicker than okay let, let's look okay that's d uh 26 and move okay so it looks like a mall to the back of the head no you just roll that die and it's like boom and you have a little illustration too to get you more immersed in the game i love this another one that i i love is the which finger did you lose die you roll that to find out what <laughs> finger was cut off. It's hysterical. I love it. I th- it's it's just such a clever little thing here. I see one of them on there. It's like you got your thumb cut off. How could you possibly continue to play with no thumbs? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is Dice of Death and Dismemberment from Deck and Dice Games, LLC. Now, I'm looking at the notes here. You got to explain this one here. Quack, quack, no take backs. So we put out the invite for publishers to submit their games to us so that we could demonstrate them to people. And one of the ones that I got was designed by Jacob Nutter. And this launches on Kickstarter on September 14th. Quack, quack, no take backs is a game that challenges players to be the first to run entirely out of their deck of cards. So how does the game play? You start the game, you deal out the deck so that everyone has an equal number of cards. And when you play, you just go around the table, taking turns, flipping over your top card, and the card's going to have an image on it that determines what happens. So, as you might imagine, one of the things that you could see is a duck. So, two ducks in a row. If if the person to my right flips up a duck and then I flip up a duck, everyone's going to try and slap the pile. And the last mm. person to slap the pile has to take the pile of cards. So, now their deck is bigger. They're that much further away from running out. If an alligator flips up, everyone takes their discard stack, passes it to the left. There's a hunter card in there. The everything underneath the hunter goes right to the trash, removed from the game. So he's kind of like a like a game clock, we'll call him. Eventually, the amount of cards in the pool will get smaller and smaller mm-hmm. as the hunter keeps coming up. And then the hunter starts a new pile for everyone to continue going around clockwise. A turtle, when the turtle flips up, everyone pass your, your hand of cards, your deck basically, to the left. And the swan, the player to your left, immediately takes the pile, unless the swan is played on the pond. In which case, you have to take the pile. So a lot going on here, and I did not mention, uh, one of my favorites is the goose. So if you flip up a goose, this is going to sound weird, Scott, follow me here. All right, all right, you're flipping up a goose. You play a sit-down game of Duck, Duck, Goose. By (laughs) tapping the card, you're going to pick up that goose card, and everybody's going to like put their hand in, and you're going to tap the hands of the players around you. So if there's five people, you just go, okay, the person on my left, tap his hand, and I say, Duck, Duck. Duck, duck, just going around. And then on somebody, I'm going to say goose. And when I do, they're going to try and slap my hand before I pull the card away. And if they can slap my hand, then I lose. If if they don't, if I get the card pulled away, then they're the one that has to take the pile in the middle. So kind of silly, kind of fun going on here. Uh, slap when you shouldn't. So like the second duck comes up, everyone has to slap the pile. So one mm-hmm. duck flips and then the next one, oh, it's an alligator. But somebody at the table inevitably, oh, they tried to slap, but they got to take it. 
If your hand runs out, well, your deck, then you're going to shuffle your discard and make a new deck and continue to play. Right. What do you think? Now, what do you think? I think it sounds incredibly stupid, but I cannot wait to play this game. There you is can't just wait to play so, quack quack no There back. is just something about this that just sounds like it's going to come with tons of laughter, a lot of joking, a lot of silliness. When you put those things together, a lot of great memories with who you're playing with. This is one of those games that you want to take to a family get together. It sounds like a lot of fun. I'm sorry. You had me at the duck 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 goose part of the game. I think that's hysterical. Well, you uh, know what? I'm reading through the rules, and that, for me, that's where it lost me. I was like, oh, geez, you know, this this doesn't sound like something that I'm going to want to play. So we have a pretty straightforward game here that's going to appeal to a casual crowd or a younger oh, yes, crowd. Oh, yes, yes. We gather that right off the bat. Uh, I tried this with my daughter, and, and she enjoyed it. In fact, I she wanted to play it again, but mm-hmm. I demoed this for adult gamer types, and it wasn't a miss there either. The thing yeah. is, I don't think anybody was clamoring to get in another play because it's it's simple. You know, if I'm having game day and I'm having, you know, if I'm going to have Jason over, for example, he right. taught me brass. He's not going to be like, oh, can we play quack quack? You know, he'll, he'll give it a try and he'll have fun yeah. with it. But he's not going to be like, OK, let's get that back to the table. You know, that's not the group for it. I think it was enjoyed because of the novelty of the group getting to try out mm-hmm. an upcoming Kickstarter because of the specific group that I played with. We like to trash talk over silly things uh, and someone's skill or lack thereof of something oh, yeah. simple like slapping a pile. That qualifies as something that we're going to belittle each other for for the next year. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you remember that, right? I think that group would have a lot of fun with games like Quack Quack, and that's why I wanted to play it with them. On the other hand, if your group looks for some meat on the bone, some depth, player agency, obviously this isn't a game for you. They're not trying to grab you. If you like something silly, if you have a family game night, if you like mm-hmm. playing with kids, or if you just have a, a group that likes a good beer and pretzels game that's going to tease each other relentlessly for slapping the pile last, this is going <laughs> to fit in pretty decently. It looks like it fits that fun party game type of thing here. Unlike the other party games that a lot of people like with Cards Against Humanity, things like that where you're playing to a judge or something, mm-hmm, those mm-hmm. can get old really quick. There's enough mystery as to what's going to be coming up with the next card you're flipping over. Yeah, you know, it was enjoyable for what it is. Uh, me personally, I really enjoy games for decisions and challenges that they present. And Quack Quack doesn't offer that, nor does it pretend that it might. Mm-hmm. So let's do sort of like a who's it for This is a nice icebreaker to start out your game day. If you have some people that you've never played with before and you want a chance to be a little silly. We said that with uh, Taco Cat Goat Cheese Pizza. It reminded me a lot of that. It's a game that you can play with your family or that you can mess around with for 10 minutes to, to end your game day. If I had any sort of reservation as far as like, playing with the younger crowd there are i think six different cards so mm-hmm. with little ones especially wait a minute what does the alligator mean you know they're a lot more prone to slapping when they're not supposed to but you know, the giggles whenever like duck 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 and you get a six-year-old duck 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 goose <laughs> it's a lot of fun that's quack quack no take backs if we want to learn more it's on uh quack quack the game dot com they have a facebook page as well kickstarter coming september 14th If you're looking for another game that fits well with your family, this could be perfect. This could be the next gem on the shelf for you. Sounds great. (laughs) 
Well, Scott, we've come to that point of episode 28. We're going to talk a little bit about how we leveled up since we last time spoke. Me? Your level up is that you got to do half an episode this week. <laughs> I, I I was expecting to get my pink slip here. Uh... Andrew actually made that joke. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yeah. Thanks, Andrew. My level up at the time of listening to this, I'll be on my second week of the Renaissance Festival, keeping myself quite busy. And I my level up was is going to be making it through Labor Day weekend. So normally we have a couple weeks before Labor Day where we have a three-day weekend. This year we're getting dumped right in on the three-day weekend, the first weekend we open. Opening so it's going to be a rough three one. Days. Yeah, it's going to be a rough one because I know even after two weeks in, you hit that three-day weekend, Monday rolls along, you are hating life right at that point in time there. But the weather looks like it's going to be perfect. It looks like it's going to be nice and cool and sunny, so looking forward to a ton of crowds. But yeah, we're in our second week, and it's going to be just a fantastic time, and I am really blessed and lucky to be able to do something that I enjoy and help people have a few laughs and just have fun. So that's that's my level up. I'm I'm really proud of being able to do that for people. Very nice. Now your level up. How did you level up, sir? Summer's over. <laughs> Which is so funny because when you're a kid, that's like the the level down that's uh-huh. no good. When you have kids, that is the level up. We made it. We made it. We can breathe. Oh, some time in the day. Uh, it, it was enjoyable, but man, summer is complete. That's my level up. <laughs> well, that sounds good there. You you, you need some time there, uh, the quiet time here to relax. We got some more time to play some games now during the week. So it's, it's a good time to be alive, I think. Yeah, I saw Ankh came in. We're going to get that to the table oh, this week. Yes, Maybe we'll make that a definitely. review coming up. Oh, there's a lot to that. So, yeah, I'm very anxious on doing that review. One last thing, Scott, speaking of coming up, listeners, we've got quests and cannons. We had the chance to sit down with Eric and Shannon Geller, designers of upcoming Kickstarter game, Quests and Cannons. That's going to be live on Kickstarter, I think, at the end of this month or towards the beginning of October. But listen next week. We do have a side quest coming. You can hear all about the game straight from the designers. Yeah, it was fantastic talking to them. The game is a lot of fun. This is a game that you would expect is fifth, sixth, seventh game that someone's come out with. And what they've done, I mean, this they've really polished everything up on this game. And it's I'm very excited to see oh, what people are doing. They're gonna crush it on Kickstarter. Oh yeah, yeah, most definitely. Well, Scott, till next time. I expect you to be here for a full episode. All right, Dad, I'll be there. (laughs) No, uh, yeah, I look forward to it as well. And hey, everyone out there, be good, be kind, be safe. We'll see you next time. See you, Scott. See you later, Patrick. Thank you so much for joining this adventure of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. There you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes. Learn more at adamhainesmusic.com. And remember, you can spend another night on the sofa, or you can get some friends together, get some adventures on the table, and 
level up.